The second half of our presentation today is from a man who needs no introduction, so I won't give him one. Uh, it's called EDMS Work Issues. Uh, it would have been called Yellow Files uh, a few years ago. Yellow Files, yes indeed. But nobody knows what that is anymore. I uh, do. But so it is EDMS Work I'm Issues, what, what to do in your EDMS queue. Uh, not directly to answer questions about EDMS, although I am going to have Brooke Araki come up at 3.30 uh, and she can answer any particular questions you have about EDMS. If we get into the technical side of EDMS, you're not going to ask me because I'm I'm learning disabled in that area, okay? But this is retired Judge Steve McMurray, who was the judge in Encanto for 20 years, former presiding judge for five years. He has a terrific bio. Please read it. And let's welcome Judge McMurray. Um, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. And we are going to shift gears now, all right? This presentation is going to be different from Mr. Gattel's presentation because Mr. Gattel is an expert on attorney's fees. And I'm not an expert on EDMS, and I'm not going to teach it that way. I'm going to tell you how I process it. Uh, but I, want, I need your participation. And I wrote two words up over here that are important to me, okay? And I'll go with the second one first. I regard this whole session, this next hour, as a collaboration. I'm going to tell you how I process EDMS. I welcome somebody interrupting me and saying, no, I think a better way of doing that is this. I'm going to tell you what I look at and what I don't look at and why to some extent. And I would love to have somebody's opinion about how uh, I should be looking at this other thing. And I will learn from that. That's the way that I want this process to go. It's going to be very much of, I'm trying to recreate the screen of EDMS in front of me, or you, and explain what the thought process is, but I don't have the right way to do it. I don't. So, that's why I talk about collaboration. Overall, the goal is convergence, and here's what I mean by that. When I started in the justice courts 20-something years ago, I talked to a prominent uh, collection attorney, uh, and he told me that back at his office, he had a shelf, uh, a bookshelf, that was more than six feet long, filled with binders that described in detail how you filed a particular civil document in a particular one of the 24 just, there were 24 at the time, 24 justice courts in Maricopa County. Because every court did it differently, wanted different things. You had to dot the I's and cross the T's on every different procedure. There was no similarity there. Ever since then, the, as far as I'm concerned, the idea is to move toward convergence. Because we're justice courts, we're handling volume. If something is filed in one court, it ought to work the same way as if it filed in the other court, pretty much. Yes, I respect judicial discretion. I'm not talking about that. But basically, we need to converge what we're doing as much as possible to make it predictable, I say. And the whole idea of best practices is an effort at convergence. As far as I'm concerned, this class, from a different perspective, is an effort at convergence. Uh, and we won't be converged by when we end this class, but I want to try and start making steps in that direction. 
That's what I'm doing here. Those are, the, those are my two objectives, okay? So like I said, we're going we're gonna to go through how you process documents when you bring up the screen in uh, EDMS. And let's take a look. Why is it getting... Charles? You'll <laughs> for 10 seconds. Okay. So uh, this first one is just like three pages. I'm going to start by going to the end, the one that flashes up, pretend that it's blank. Here I'm being asked to sign a default judgment for $4,000 with costs, because, uh, you know, this is the first thing that flashes up in EDMS, uh, and I like to start with that. So I know I'm being asked to sign a judgment against Monica for $4,000, but fortunately they're not seeking attorney's fees. They're not even seeking interest. This, is gonna, this ought to be simple. So I'm not going to give it a whole lot of thought, but I am, first of all, going to go from there to the affidavit of service. And I note that Monica was served uh, on 44th Street in apartment 1126. Uh, she's not married. She said she was single. I routinely, at this point, will now put review Charles Stephen McMurray in EDMS, in case it ever comes up. Um, uh, I did look to confirm those things I just went through before I signed a judgment against Monica. Uh, I used to write the initials when I had the yellow files, a hard copy. Now I put it in EDMS and save it. Um, the next thing I look at when it's like a credit card case, I can tell that. I would go to somewhere, and by the way, sometimes this is filed in proof of debt. Sometimes this is filed in the application for default judgment, not the uh, notice of default, but the second filing application. But I try to find this. Here's a Capital One credit billing for $4,022.25 against Monica Hutchinson in apartment 1126 on 44th Street. Oh, I'm sorry. No names were recording. Against this person. Um, and so now I'm done. I'm signing the judgment. That would be all I would look at. Yes. So I'm just Patrick. What I do, the first thing I look at is the summons and the complaint. I can't even tell you how many times I will look at the complaint and it's seeking $2,000. I have a judgment in front of me seeking $4,000. Sometimes attorneys are submitting so many at once, they neglect to change the amount. So I, I look at two things before I find a judgment, the complaint amount, and then I look at service. Very good point. And uh, if I have any questions, I will, uh, if I have any doubts, I will then start uh, and go back and look at the complaint first. This time when I see a judgment, for Capital One Bank uh, against Monica, um, I, pro I might not even look at the complaint. But that's a good point, and I'm not saying your way of doing it is, is uh, mine is better than yours. I'm just telling you, like I said, what I would do here, because we're going to get a little bit more elaborate now. Simple default judgment alternative service. Um, here is the order permitting use of alternative service. 
by the way, this is, I first go and I look, this is signed by Judge Chevron. This is, we're in Encanto. This is his order. I look and see that he has authorized mail, first class mail, to the address on, on this street and also first class mail uh, at, an, at a second address. The thought occurs to me, hmm, why aren't we posting? At least at one of those. But that's about all it is, because the thought occurs to me, but Chevron has signed the alternative order. I'm certainly not going to go behind. As a pro tem sitting in Chevron's court, I'm not going to go behind this. I'm just going to go to the affidavit and make certain they mailed it to the city. Those places. Most likely, it could have been in a place where they didn't have access. Yeah, uh, but I'm not going to go. Even if it had been a uh, pro tem in your court, if that's there, I'm probably not going to go behind it. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you, Charlie. So, the next thing is the affidavit of service. Mail to two addresses. Fine. Reviewed by McMurray. They, they match. I'm now ready to go to the next step, which is the credit card bill. You're, you're pushing your fingers together while you're doing that. That's why you're doing that. <laughs> and there is Nicole, this lady um, at this address, which is one of the two addresses, by the way. Um, and she's got a bill for this amount up here. So now I go to the, the default judgment. No, big, big is good. Her, here I, I needed to fill in the uh, uh, interest rate. And I dated it and signed it. That's, that's all I would do in this kind of simple default judgment with alternative service. Not so simple default judgment. You've got this material, by the way. You can look. Uh, let's, this is against Carol. Let's go look at the, of course, we start at the judgment. Look, it's a judgment against Carol and Gerald. Hmm. Uh, for a certain amount, looks like it's probably a credit card bill, but at this point, with this, now I would probably go to the complaint because I want to know what the in original entity was, and I'd also look at the amount. And when I go to the complaint, I notice that the complaint is only against Carol and John Doe. Hmm. Let's go to the, pr the proof of service. Upon Carol and on John Doe, whose true name is this guy, Who's the, hu who's the husband, served at their regular place of dress. 
everybody know about the new best practice the justice courts have that was adopted in March about filling in uh, John Doe's? It's very important. We need to learn it. We're going to have to turn the ship around on this. But I can tell you right now, this is not good enough. This is not good enough. This, by itself, is not enough to justify a judgment against... It would be enough, I think, by the way, if the judgment were just against Carol, because here's the credit card billing and the address. But this is a judgment against both of them. And I didn't sign it. And I sent it back, because this is inadequate service upon him. And we're going to look in more detail at the best practice in just a moment, but I want you to look at another example. Because at the next example, I screwed it up. Notice of amended caption. The complaint was against him and Jane Doe. This was for the sale of a, or purchase of a car. The service, when they served him, he told him that his wife's name is this. So we now have a service upon, uh, initial service upon both him and her, not the Jane Doe. And this law firm did this wonderful thing, I thought at the time. Notice of amended caption. Jane Doe, whose true name has been correctly identified, now the future captions will bear the, the true name. I thought last week that was pretty good before I read and studied the new best practice. This is not good enough. This is not good enough. And therefore, my act, oh by the way, here's, the, here's the, where I found the car rental and there's the 24.99% interest and here's his signature on it, reviewed by me. And here's where I went ahead and signed the judgment against both of them. And this is a mistake on my part. Sorry. I think there are other people in this room who've made similar mistakes. But I'm telling you, under the best practice, this is not good enough. We can take a look at the best practice. It's in your materials. But I'm going to bottom line it for you here. Okay? If you're substituting a John Doe, you've got to have an amended complaint. You probably don't need a motion to amend the complaint. If there's not been an answer filed, and there's not an answer in default cases, then you don't need permission for, of the court. You file the amended complaint, listing both of them. An amended complaint, it's filed. It has to be served. This next part I wrestled with for a while. It has to be served. You could, the, the, they could use a process server, they can also, instead of a process server, the plaintiff can use regular and certified mail. By the way, I used to, on alternative service, always used to ask for both regular and certified mail. I backed away recently from certified mail. Charlie makes the point, um, whoever gets good news from certified mail. Uh, regular mail is probably good enough in that area, but it's not in this area because of the language of the rules of court for justice courts. That they will allow 
in this instance, service by regular and certified mail. By the way, I haven't seen it done right yet. I have not seen it done right yet. But this is a best practice that is, was adopted in March of, of 2019 and after reading it and knocking my head against it, I think the best practice is spot on. And I didn't when I first read it. But, and of course on July 15th, I hadn't studied it. So I went ahead and did this. And, and the best practice is at page 19 of your materials. This best practice was something that was negotiated between plaintiffs and defense attorneys uh, along with the bench. Yeah, um, I, I was on the best practice committee when they started that process. When I retired at the end of the year, they hadn't gotten it through. But uh, now that I've spent some time with it, I think it is solid. And I know and uh, you will, uh, uh, we're working on a standardized corrective action. Danny from South Mountain Justice Court has, has, has been drafting on one. We're providing it. We're going to get it out to clerks. Hopefully, as a judge or a pro tem, uh, you can just simply enter in the uh, clerk's action, uh, uh, no, no amended complaint uh, to add, uh, to substitute Jane Doe, send out standard uh, corrective action notice. That's what we're going for, to make your life simple. So your clerks will just kick it back and the, and the corrective action says you can refer to the uh, best practice we have. If you need a copy, we'll send it to you. But we're turning the battleship on this point because trust me, like I say, I've not seen it done right yet. However, as a side, when I was in Encanto Justice Court on Wednesday, in front of me was Jay Vance Anderson. Remember him? You've seen his name. I told him uh, there's a best practice like this. He said it's it sounds to me like it's a good idea. So we just have to train people and we have to train this law firm, which is a pretty good law firm, to do this. Yes, we're not naming names in this thing. Okay. Any questions so far? Any suggest? Yes, Susan. So no, this is great. Um, so Judge, there's uh, no, it says the court should freely grant motions for leave to amend before judgment, and I wrote in my in my margin, no oral motions to amend because it can't be served. The amendment, unless they get the defendants well, present. Well, that's something very different. I mean, we're processing default judgments in EDMS, okay? We don't have anybody in there to make an oral motion. It's a good point, but we're not going to have oral motions to amend then. So this, is, this best practice is only for defaults? Think so. No. No? It's for anything with a John Doe. It's for any John Doe. I'm only looking at it right now from processing defaults. Okay. Uh, these two names, this is just, this, is ju this next thing is just an example of you've got, the, you've got to go through the file. Looked like it was something different than it was, it wasn't. Here, let's, I, I, if we can, maybe, yeah, I think I listed the complaint first time. Notice, this is him and Doe and her and Doe. I don't know if they're brother and sister or husband and wife. I don't know. 
and you won't know at the end of this. But this is the way they listed them in the complaint. So I go to look for the affidavit of service and there's a double entry and I think it's a mistake. Well, it's not a mistake. Oops. There are two affidavits of service filed on the same date. Here's where the, the he went, the process server served him and uh, Jane Doe by leaving it with John Doe who refused his name on April 7th at 10.20 a.m. I noted I reviewed that. And then, fortunately, next to it was another affidavit of service in which the process server provided a copy of for Tamika and John Doe by leaving with the same John Doe at the same date and time. So they basically put four copies uh, on this John Doe, one for him and his spouse and one for her and her spouse. So here, by the way, was the contract, which incidentally lists both of them here. And down here is where both of them signed. And now I'm, uh, I'll tell you, I'm pretty much done. I don't, in these circumstances, look closely at what the amount is. I don't. I have a complaint with an amount in it. I have service on both of them. I have the contract. I know they signed it. I'm ready to sign. They're not seeking legal fees or costs anyway. I've signed this. That's how I would review it. Would anybody do anything any different? Yes? Yeah, I wouldn't sign it unless I had the ledger. And I wanted to see exactly what the payments were made and how it corresponds to the, uh, the amounts. Because many times I see mistakes that are made in there or how they determine the final amount. I hear what you're saying, and I probably need to be looking at ledgers when I'm working in Encanto, and I always look at ledgers in other types of cases. This type of case, in the years I've been doing it, I, don't see, I haven't found those kinds of mistakes. And you, there's a trade-off. How much time are you going to spend on this case for how much time has the defendant given it to you? You bet if the defendant put anything in there saying that the amount is wrong, that would be an intense inquiry. But how much time are we going to give? I usually spend between five and 20 minutes on each case. Got it. Yes? One of the things that concerns me is I take a look at it, and if they're asking for no interest, I'm not really too concerned. If they're asking for interest, I, want to, I do want to take a cursory look at the principal to see if they've included interest in that principal. We're going to get into that. That's a very good point. Before we move on, we do have Brooke Araki here uh, to answer any questions about you might have about EDMS. And I wanted Brooke Araki to know that when I, in this kind of thing, when I go looking for this in the different justice courts, there is no consistency about where I'm going to find this. Some justice courts have this proof of debt. Some justice courts would simply have it in application for default judgment. There's no consistency. Is that a question? No, that's. 
that's not a question. That's just I want everybody to know you've got to look for it. Do you have any questions for Brooke before? You use one finger, Judge. <laughs> okay. Moving right along. Let's get into the matter of alternative service. I want one of these. You want one of those? I want one of these. I have one in my house. Ah. <laughs> Next to the fridge. <laughs> Motion for leave for alternative service. We want to serve Norberto. Here is an application that says that they went to this address. Services attempted on multiple occasions. We're going to look at that affidavit, attempted affidavit service. It's interesting. They also checked with the motor vehicle records. They and the assessor's office, and they've attached these things, and they did an accurate Nexus Lexus search. This is good. This looks good. I think it still requires more uh, investigation. N not assuming they did this right, but I need to look at the documentation that they're providing here. And this was a great affidavit of service, by the way. Um, no vehicles present, no cars present, no address. Now, this much to me is not, is not good enough yet. Spoke to the neighbors to the left. They verified the defendant lives here. Good, okay, getting better. No address, blind peeking. Movement inside, internal lights on. Better, but not there. Oh, additional tag, that's the, the process of diligence. This defendant was personally served at this address a, a month ago in a different case, at the same address. Hmm, okay. So, by the way, they did also include with this the results of the going to MVD and checking that his cars are registered there and all these other things like that. So, it, now it turns out it wasn't even me who signed this, but I wanted to show you what they'd gone through and I think, I think this uh, pro tem judge did a, a fine job in authorizing this. So now it's been uh, authorized, and I'm being asked to sign the default judgment. And here's the proof of service that um, alternative method posting and mailing first class mail. Now remember, I said that uh, when I first started on this sort of thing, I always said posting by first class and certified mail. Used to write it in certified mail. Some judges still do that. As a pro tem, you've got to look at the order. And if the order had posting and, and first class and certified mail, and the affidavit of service only had posting and first class mail, I say you have to deny it. Yes. Um, I've seen a couple of them come through that are first class only, and I'm kind of adamant about not doing just first class. Because doesn't the rule say it's anything the court orders and first class? No, I don't know. I don't think so. But I will tell you. To, unless it's changed. I will tell you that I used to do certified and first class mail. If I'm doing it now, 
And I don't know that I, the judge in my, the court, that's always the controlling factor. If the judge says, do it this way, you do it this way. But if I don't have that in front of me, uh, Charlie Adonetto has said to me, when was the last time you heard anybody getting new, good news by certified mail? So uh, t for me, if I were doing it myself. And I also say nobody's going to make a trip to the post office to pick up certified mail. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, posting and first-class mail is good enough if I'm the person authorizing the alternative service. In this case, um, I wasn't the person authorizing it. So I'm clearly not going to knock this out because it doesn't have certified mail. Yeah, but I've seen them where alternative service is first-class only, and I don't think that's sufficient. But if this order said certified in first class mail and I only had one, then I would knock it out. Okay? But this was posting first class mail, fine, I reviewed it, we're moving on. But I've, I've turned them back where it's supposed to be one or all, all three and they're missing one, missing first class or missing certified and you in, indicate that a service is insufficient, and they come back with amended magically that says way back when they really did do first class or certified, whichever was missing. That just bothers the daylights out of me that the process server didn't do it right in the first place. But at least the file's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Credit card billing for this amount to this guy at this address, and I'm done. Judgment for that amount with costs signed by me. There's other options. Um, I just wanted to point this out as an example. Um, Judge Williams uh, is on a tear, I think it's a great tear right now. Um, he's been getting affidavits of service, or excuse me, requests for alternative service that are skimpy. And what he's doing is, this is an example of uh, a corrective action. Now, never mind. He has sent this out. Per the judge, not valid service, no verification of residency or understanding of process provided. This, by the way, was what prompted it. This is the, what, the thing that he prompted it, uh, the service of a corrective action. Uh, this guy was subserved by leaving documents with John Doe, who's suitable age and discretion, and who resides at the same abode as the defendant, but refused true name nor accept papers, refuse service, drop serve. For J Judge Williams, that's insufficient service. I suspect he's right. He's not, he wants more. I have no problem with that. Uh, you might want to do something like that. Again, talk, uh, you ought to know what your judge wants. Uh, but I, I myself personally would have a great deal of trouble authorizing a judgment against him based upon this with nothing more, with no proof that he lived there. Yes? How many have seen the request for alternative service where the process service is vacant? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we're getting that's the that's the other that's the other end of the spectrum here, or clo this is close to that end of the spectrum. Okay. Let's look at a, a, a second example from South Mountain Justice Court. Per the judge, this is not valid service. No information provided on how process server determined that John Doe was roommate resident. Uh, did he indicate he lived there? Here's the affidavit of service. Serve Michael by giving it to John Doe, who refused to give his name, roommate, co-resident, who tried to refuse service by refusing to take documents, did not state reason for, did not state reason for refusal. So how can we say that it was left with a person uh, of suitable age and discretion who stated they reside at the same place? Those th things sound inconsistent to me. Was he wasn't going to tell the process server that he was a burglar. Yeah, he wasn't going to do that. But I mean, you know, maybe he was, I don't know, maybe he was a handyman. I don't know. Uh, but um, you'll see these questions, and you're going to have to address these questions. And I like what um, uh, Judge uh, Williams is doing uh, with regard to, to things like this. He's not flat out dismissing it. He's saying, give me more. That's always an appropriate uh, course of action if you have doubts. If we can back up to uh, Andrew's question, uh, Rule of Civil Procedure 4 does say for alternative service that at a minimum uh, it should be mailed to the last known place of address. So all the more reason that when you see the uh, affidavit of service for alternative service that you see in there that it includes that it was mailed regular mail. Yeah. Good. Okay. We're going to... Uh, shift a little bit, well, it's actually, it's still a default judgment, but it's no longer a simple default judgment, okay? And this is going to get into some of the issues that Steve and Gattel covered. We know this firm. We know and, and love them. They're suing him. He lives at this address. Okay, fine. And he was served at this address, fine. I, I got this far. I verified that we've got the right person here. This was a page I just copied. You know, they've got all their CC&Rs in here. Um, uh, but I, I just took one page because I said, okay, they're allowed to charge late charges in their CC&Rs. They're also allowed to start collection and lien actions but so far, I haven't seen any set amounts. And now we have a statement. Um, and, and he, the owner, uh, was getting billed $51 per month as a homeowner's association assessment. I thought that was pretty fine. And he was paying $51 a month. Uh, and here he got behind, and he got charged a $20 late fee. Kind of high, but... Uh, probably all right, maybe all right. I don't know. Let's keep going. Okay, here. Lean placement, $150. I've never seen anywhere so far, maybe I missed it, but I haven't seen where lean placement, uh, placing a lien on the property justifies $150 addition. Um, 
$75 demand notice. We don't have the attorney in here. Where's this demand notice? Well, we don't have the attorney in yet, by the way. They're sending a demand notice, 75. Hmm. Now we're up to this amount. Um, transaction history. Here, now we're going to get very interesting. Here's his balance. Here's his late charges. A collection cost added now of $585. I don't know where that came from. We're not to the attorney's fees yet. Um, 51 late fees, okay. And, and these fines, they may be appropriate for inoperable vehicles left. I don't know, maybe. Weeds, fine, that's not a huge concern of mine yet. But now, we have the ledger balance from the Homeowners Association. Remember there was a collection cost, and now there's another plus pre-litigation cost of 582. Where in the world did that come from? So the principal balance is now $2,900. And I'm sorry, you, you want, might want to look at this in your materials since it's on its side here. But now we have the attorney's fees billing. And it's difficult for me to read. But it looks to me like this first line, they're charging a paralegal out at $258 an hour. And an associate attorney at 112. Um, and you've got... And then the same paralegal at 185 an hour. Yes. And then what... Here, well, here's 247.50 an hour. Mm -hmm. prepare, prepare stipulation to judgment and covenant not to execute. This is a default. Why have we prepared a stipulation and charged this much when the guy's not signing it? And there's no indication he ever was going to sign it. Why are we? Why do we have these charges? And their judgment that they wanted signed was for the twenty-nine hundred and one thousand three hundred and forty dollars in attorney's fees. Remember, this has got more than a thousand dollars in collection cost in here now. So, I'm not signing. I think the thing to do in this situation is to put a, you know, the clerk action required, set a default hearing, and describe in your notice the court is concerned about the amount of attorney's fees, the collection costs imposed before the attorney's fees, and several other questionable items in the, in the billing. Set a default hearing to determine the amount of the judgment and attorney's fees. And if you're a pro tem, you need to have some explanation there because you don't know you're going to be the, the judge hearing the matter. So you don't want the judge who's hearing the matter to go in cold. You've got to have some description there. And by the way, you should tip uh, them off as to what you want. That should go into the notice. So the court has these concerns. I think it's, it's only fair to tip them off. But uh, Mr. Gattel did say to me, and now I'm going to quote him, that in this sort of situation, even if they can come back in and adjust and justify these things, they're probably not entitled to attorney's fees for coming in and justifying this. Because if they wanted it, it should have been clear in their original application. 
So they can come in and maybe justify this, but not get additional attorney's fees because you set the hearing to see why, where that $150 lien fee charge came from. And why are these amounts in the application uh, in terms of widely varying amounts for a, a paralegal there? So my recommendation, again, in this situation would be uh, uh, clerk action required, set a default hearing, the court has these concerns. That's how I would handle it. And then it would fall to some other pro tem to <laughs> preside at that hearing. Hopefully, hopefully with, uh, uh, they're not starting from, the, um, from nothing. Anybody have any questions or concerns or suggestions? Yes. No, I agree, I agree with you. I, I know that I put notes ad nauseum on everything, just so in case somebody else gets it, that they understand what, and I always give a reason for whatever decision I make. I, and I always put a shabak. You know, this is the thing I'm looking for. And for pro tem, if you're sitting there and you've got this hearing, you've got to make certain you take the time to go and look in the, what do they call that? In, Proceeding, case proceedings thing. Look for those kinds of things. That's the logical place in EDMS to put to put these concerns for the person coming after you. You also need to look at the sticky notes. Some yeah. courts use sticky notes. Some use move proceeding sheets. I use both. The nice thing with I the sticky notes. Every single page. And see. <laughs> See, I always read the sticky notes, but I can't swear to you I'd have no clue on how to put one in. <laughs> I, I do know how to squeeze them down so I can read the thing, but that's not it. And I pay attention to them. Okay. Car title loans. Charlie took out a term that was up above here before because we've got to keep this neutral. Um, but this is a great case. And I want you to know... This was a case where I gathered all the material up. This was earlier this week. I think it was Tuesday. I was in the downtown facility. The five judges uh, uh, in, of the downtown facility were having a luncheon meeting, and I busted in with these paperwork to ask how to do it. And the answers I got were not exactly the same. If there were five judges and you got seven answers. <laughs> And I signed this, and I signed it because I did it the way Cody Williams wanted it, because this is in the South Mountain Justice Court. And uh, let me tell you, if it had been in another one of the courts, it would have probably been a little bit different. But I walked in saying, everybody's going to agree I have to write this down. Just how much and how far and where. That's the issue, okay? So, uh, I, I wanted you to see this because this is a form used by certain uh, collectors. We have a best practice that says you do not serve the statutory agent of the employer of the defendant. That is too far remote. You don't do that. So uh, this very competent uh, pro tem did what I have done often and stricken the language about the statutory agent. But you'll have to do that when you see these orders. And I, I, I agree with him that that was fine. But they can, by the way, serve somebody controlling access to this employer. 
And you're going to have these kinds of things because this is a car title loan, so you know that she's probably ducking. Um, so here's the declaration of service, and they served her by giving it to a named manager at their place of employment and mailing copies to her. Okay, fine, signed it. I'm now past this, the proof of service stage. Here's what I wanted you to see. This was a loan originally of $500. She agreed to pay a total of $2,000 over the next two years to pay off the car title loan. And she, so she agreed to pay an interest rate for two years of 204%. She agreed to that. This is page one of seven. I think I, later on I'm going to have page seven where I went and got, found her signature on this and noted that. But this is not necessarily in order. Here is, in a nutshell, the lender's ledger, a loan of $500 at this interest rate. Short th answer is they want a judgment today of $6,202 at more than 200% interest into the indefinitely for, bar for borrowing $500. That's what they're asking. Here's where they said back, by the way, in 2015, we're now in 2019, that they want their money back. This is, the, again, this is page seven, where I found that she did sign this contract, seven-page contract, there's her signature. So, this is the form that I took in to the conference room to talk to Judge Williams and the other judges. Um, the debate was, I think, not. Don't quote me, but one of the other judges in the building might well have entered the $2,000 amount as the amount owed. Um, and then calculate the interest at 10% from then. That's, a, that's an acceptable way to do it. That's not the way Judge Williams wanted it done, but that might be a, a way some other judge. Cost, this was interesting to me. I went back and looked at that. Um, I think we can all agree we're not going to award the 200% the interest. Um, the, I think the acceptable uh, rate for this is the default rate in the statute of 10% at this point, I think. For a, a debt-based in writing, right. it's 10%. So <coughs> eventually, after talking to Judge Williams, I awarded <coughs> the 500 plus the accrued interest for the two years. So this is the 2000 amount that was in the contract. And I'm giving them 10% interest. And I went back and looked at the cost and just found different affidavits of service. I think there were three. And I got that total. And I did not have a statement of cost to go on. So I adjusted the cost down. And that's what I signed. But as I said before, other judges might want you to do it somewhat differently. I think as a bench, everybody agrees we're going to write down a lot of this. We're not going to grant $6,000 at 200% interest. I think everybody on the bench would agree to that. But what your judge wants 
you need to know if you're going to be processing and signing these things. You need to know that. Yes? Did you calculate the interest at not the 200%, at what, 10%? Is that? Yeah. Okay, so that's okay. Because I was wondering, I've heard, at least in evictions, that you limit like late fees because the landlord decided to wait four or five months to do someone else. And here's someone went from 2014 to 2019. Yeah, and I did not so give them any interest on that. Okay, so that, so the accrued interest is contract rate. Contract rate. Contract I also didn't write this up to 6.5. Yes. Why two years? That's what Judge Williams wanted. Oh, the original contract. The original contract was for two years. Correct. She agreed to pay this back and this much interest. But I see nothing in here that shows they tried to repossess the vehicle. There wasn't. There wasn't a vehicle. Uh, there was. It was a car title loan. Now, you're right. They could probably could have done that. Well, they didn't. They, there are a whole bunch of remedies for title loan and underpayer places that they tend not to use until they run up a sufficient amount of interest in their brain. All right. All right. So, 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 at even in two years, GAP requires you to write off bad debt within 90 to 120 days. That's when the interest should, should stop, or the earlier of if they repossess the vehicle. And I talk That's to judges I, all the time, and what they say is it's a contract, contract rate. Can't violate the contract. Well, we're creating but, a perpetual class of poverty. But the contract is over once they've written it off, anyways. No, they, uh, see, that's, that's the issue. Okay. They will claim it's not. We could spend two days on this subject. Okay. We're pro tems, or I'm speaking as a pro tem, and again, I'm telling you, you find out what the judge wants, you give it to him, or you don't sign the judgment, and you leave it for the judge to do it. That's the way to do it. We, as pro tems, have limited authority. We're not to go out and be creating something novel that we think is great. Elected judges have more authority than we do. And that's right. That's the way the system works. They're accountable. We're, we're accountable to the bench. So you, we agree that you made a mistake on the interest? No. I'm telling you, that's what Judge Williams wanted. <laughs> That's the way I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> not, the, not the 10, the 6. Oh, here. Well. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, the 6 should be 6.5. It should be 6.5. Yeah, you struck the document prep fees out of the cost. Is that what I did? Yeah. Oh, all right. And do we have a reason for that? No, I did, did not intentionally strike document prep fees. If I thought about it, I probably would have allowed it, but what I did was go find the three affidavits of service and total them up, and that was the total. Because it magically adds the $125 that the top uh, prep fee was. All right. Maybe I missed it. Yeah, maybe I made a mistake. Well, what, I, what I like is that it, it validates, the, I mean, it, it upholds the contract. It says you borrowed $500, you expected to pay $1,562 in interest. We're granting that, and then you get your court costs. Right. And that's it. It's elegant, simple, but it, and then it's ten percent interest. That's that's post judgment. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Right? Right. Well, it doesn't say that. But oh, so that's why yes. it really matters if, yes. the, if the two thousand dollars is the yes. amount or yes. if the five hundred is the amount. Right. There's a lot of there's a I lot. I think it doesn't say post judgment on there, does it? No. So no. then there's a crew that it could be from the data of which is four years. Yeah, four years. Which that's, would be that should be clarified. Yes. Yeah. Just so I'm sure, you know, I'm not really uh, I'm a hearing officer. Small claims. Mm -hmm. We get these type of things on a regular basis. So the way I've been taught is to award what the amount would have been principal and interest for the duration of the loan. Mm -hmm. And not, you know, they filed the loan three years, three years later. after, you know, regardless of the statute of limitation, we only award a better amount. We may want to award a 10% for our other things, but that is the amount, you know, just what they would have gotten otherwise. Well, you know, maybe the best thing here, I, I tend to agree with you, with interest on the principal at 10% interest per annum beginning in that date in that That might be an improvement on this. But I just, just want to make sure I, I understand this correctly. Yeah, there's, it's a... Uh, I just want to be sure I understand myself. I, I award them the principal and the interest they would have been entitled for the duration of the loan. That's what that he did. That's what you did over here. I think I think that's probably good and fair. You're not going to remember this is what Judge Williams wants. I understand. I understand. I got it. Now I want. I have a, a, a question. The loan was not. The loan was due in uh, the end of 2019. So since the lady didn't stop the payment, uh, January 1st, they brought in the case, and now they're looking for all the money through the end, of, you know, what, what the end of the loan was been in 2019. Mm -hmm. So they sued for, let's say, $1,500, but they would have been entitled $2,000 by the end of 2019. So I awarded the $2,000, they would have done it the whole thing. Is that? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's reasonable. We got it. Thank you. Sir. Did they repo the car? No, that's that's, that's not an issue. We are not going to be fixed on the damn car. We're going to move on. I get a whole bunch of we're not. We're not going to resolve it. Don't be, don't be logical. It doesn't we're going to talk about a, 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 a different question right now. Motion. Motions for summary judgment. Okay. Now, um, by the way, l l let me say we've covered default judgments. I also tell people if you're if you have a motion for judgment on the pleadings, what I would do, I would I don't even read a motion for judgment on the pleadings. If I know it's there, I go to the answer, and I read the answer. And the answer, if the answer says, you know, um, I admit I owe the money, but uh, these people were very rude to me uh, when they were trying to collect it. Then I'm going to go ahead and grant the motion for judgment on the pleadings. Uh, I have had situations with some fairly good attorneys where I read the answer and the answer says, uh, I admit I owe them money, but the amount they've got is wrong. And they're filing for a judgment on the pleadings. No, there's a factual dispute. How much is owed? Motion denied. Okay. We're now in the situation of motions for summary judgment. 
and this is, the, this is now the McMurray principle. If you have a motion for summary judgment filed by an attorney and the defendant is representing themselves, self-represented. In those situations, I always go first to the answer. And I read the answer. I had a case um, about a year ago where I did that and the defendant's answer was, it was a credit card case, and her answer was, I made the mistake of having a bum as a live-in boyfriend for about three months. While he was in my house, he stole my information. He went and applied for this credit card. He ran up these charges. I knew nothing about it, and he's long gone. That was her answer. And the plaintiff moved for summary judgment. Now, I'm a litigator, and I've been in Superior Court, and I've wrote, written those memorandums that says, if there's a motion for summary judgment, you can't rely upon allegations in the answer. You have to produce affidavits to create a factual issue. If you don't do it, then the motion should be granted. I've written those memorandums. I know that. However, in justice court, with an attorney versus a self-represented litigant, I think the answer is different. In that particular case, having read the answer, I set the motion for summary judgment for oral argument. The defendant showed up. I put her on oath and put her on the witness stand and asked her questions about the live-in boyfriend and what happened. And then I let the attorney for the credit card company ask her any questions he wanted. And at the end of it, I said, all right, I am now deeming the record of her testimony under oath as the equivalent to an affidavit submitted opposing the motion for summary judgment. And based upon that, I'm denying the motion for summary judgment because we have a factual issue here. And the attorney said, Judge, I think that's a fundamentally fair result. So, and I'm flying that flag, and I've been flying that flag since then, and no one's taken me on. I had a case, it was in Judge Chevron's court, it was when I, when I was substituting, and it was the same sort of thing. The, it, they were suing uh, James and Robert, different last names. James, who bought the car, defaulted. Uh, Robert filed an answer saying, my name is on that car loan stuff, but when I went there, James was my friend, and I just was going along for, to, to show him around, and the person at the car dealer agency said, they're not asking me to co-sign, they're asking me simply to provide him with a credit reference. I don't know how my name got on these documents. That was the answer. Motion for summary judgment based upon the documents. No response. In that case, I said, set the matter for oral argument on motion for summary judgment. And I wrote in the uh, clerk's action required, this court has a concern about what happened with regard to this person based upon his answer. I can't tell if he's actually a co-signer or not. Don't know how that turned out, by the way. But that's how, I did, uh, that's how I did it, and that's how I would recommend it be done. In this case, going to get fun now. Here's the answer. 
and I think it is probably a credit card case, given who the plaintiff's attorney is. I deny this complaint because this bank sold this account when it was already closed because this account was hacked, investigated, and after that, Citibank charged $50 and closed it, and after a few months set up, probably there was a uh, confusion. I had two accounts. That's the answer. Now, frankly, I would have probably set that, if it had been my, mine, I was the first one in here, I would have probably set this matter for um, uh, oral argument on the motion for summary judgment based upon that answer, but that wasn't, uh, I wasn't there. I think that, oh, this is, this is something else. I only have this document from this case, so I have to tell you what happened. Uh, the pro tem denied the motion for summary judgment. The attorney for the plaintiff then filed a motion to disqualify the, the pro tem judge who had signed it, saying, we did not know it had been signed to a different judge. The first thing we knew that this, this particular uh, judge was assigned to the case was when we got the judgment. We still have the right to challenge him. We challenge him. Um, and then another pro tem judge, you get, when you get a series of pro tems, you can sometimes get this thing pretty confused. He granted that uh, and, and, and said the motion for summary judgment is reinstated, and now it comes to me. And I'm thinking, hmm, can't deny it because they'll do that to me. <laughs> Probably set this matter for uh, oral argument. I'm telling you all this to tell you that I still think that the best thing to do in a case like this is to set it for oral argument. At least they're not, they're not going to successfully, maybe they'll notice you, but the motion for some, the oral argument will still be scheduled. And another judge can hear it and they'll have used up their preemptory challenge. Which, by the way, they probably did with him, so they didn't have a preemptory to me. But still, uh, I wanted you to see this and know this sort of thing is happening. I say, again, the McMurray principle now is motion for summary judgment, collection case, attorney versus self-represented litigant, go to the answer. You might decide you're going to go back and read the motion for summary judgment because the answer doesn't create an issue. I'm not saying you, st you still have to read the motion for summary judgment, but you might grant it. But, but please, I, I hope you will go look at the answer before you go any further in motions for summary judgment. And then the final thing I told you about alternative service, this is the proposal. This is the, the John Doe issue. This is the John Doe issue, excuse me. Um, this is our proposal, we're still playing with it before we send it out to all of the clerks and things like that, but other Maricopa County Justice Court's best practice does not allow parties to be added or replaced without the filing of an amended complaint, which may require a motion to amend. Please contact the court to obtain a copy of MCJC best practice regarding this matter. This language may still be tinkered with, but we want you to know it is in the works to get out to all of the courts the recommended corrective action so that when you see this in EDMS, all you have to do is say, send out standard best, uh, corrective action regarding John Doe. 
and we will start turning that particular ship around. That concludes my presentation. Thank you, everybody. Any questions? That concludes the presentation. Thank you.